Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Tuesday, the 18th of July, as we record a little early this week. So we are in the dark as to the big macro events of the next few days, such as inflation figures. But with that in mind, we are sticking to our bread and butter, which is company analysis. We will start today with the AIM-listed brick and building products distributor Brickability. Its full-year results were out on Monday. Then we'll discuss this week's cover feature on the secret stars of the FTSE, or at least those companies that are finding the growth that their large cap equivalents sometimes struggle to. Speaking of the FTSE, we are also looking at one of the newest entrants into the 250 mid-cap index, the slightly curious Me Group. Joining me to discuss all this are Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Mike Fahey. Hi, Mike. Hello, Dan. Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. And over the line, Mark Robinson. Great to be here. Good to have you, Mark, as ever. We are going to begin then with brickability. Like anything to do with construction at the moment, uh, it must be under a bit of pressure operationally, Mike. But how are the figures, which were for the, the year to 31st of March, I believe? Yeah, um, I well, quite good. I, I described them as uh, like being an island of relative calm in an ocean of tumult. Um, quite a lot of it's... Peers and competitors have issued profit warnings recently, but brickability, um, you know, its revenues are up 30%. Um, adjusted profits, gross profits were all around the the 30% level as well. Its pre-tax profit was much higher, but there's a technicality um, regarding contingent consideration for something it bought in the past for that. Um, overall, um it seems to have have done well largely because of past acquisitions, I would say. Um, it's it listed in 2019 and its transformational acquisition was done uh, in 2021. Uh, a business called Taylor Maxwell, which, uh, like Brickability, distributes bricks, but also distributed a lot of timber and has timber facades. And that business has possibly been slightly more resolute than the core brick business. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it, it does have a couple of strings to its bow. I mean, it, compared with the brick makers, uh, you know, Brickability obviously a bit more distributor, mm. well, is more focused on uh, distribution. Do do we think that's the reason for the resilience? You know, is there much in the outlook in terms of being concerned about the months ahead? The, the, the interesting thing with this is that when you talk to the brick makers, the likes of Forterra and Ibstock and Micklemersh, they... Their argument has always been that um, they are much better positioned than the importers. Um, there is, or there has been for quite a long time, a, a deficit in UK brickmaking that um, de- demand has outstripped supply for years. Last year, the market total was like 2.5 billion bricks and there were 500 million imports and those imports, what, 20% was the were at the highest level they'd ever been. And the argument was that when this market tightens, the lowest cost producers will be the ones that benefit and the imports will be the, the part of the market that are worst hit. Um, now, there is evidence of that. Um, when Forterra put out a trading update last week, they said that um, you know the housing market slowdown has meant that um, brick 
overall demand for bricks is down quite considerably. It's down about 30%, but they said in the first four months of the year, the amount of imports have fallen by 44%. So, um, yeah, it seems that imports are falling faster uh, than the overall decline in the market. But when we spoke to Brickability, um, the chairman, John Mitchell, was saying that it's slightly more defensive than people might think, uh, and that's largely because of the type of bricks it imports. Um, Ibstock and uh, Forterra and the likes uh, make wire-cut bricks, extruded bricks, they call them, um, and they are the, predominantly the type of red bricks that you would see in buildings in most parts of the country. Um, John Richard said, in general, you know, they're the predominant bricks used in the north, in Scotland, in the Midlands. But um, a lot of planners in the south of England want um, a different type of brick. They want these kind of moulded or pressed bricks made from soft clay because that's the vernacular style in local housing. And something like 80 or 90% of all of the imports are this moulded clay brick. The business split as well, uh, you know, you mentioned timber. I mean, it, there's other, you know, non-housing aspects to it as well. Does that potentially make it more resilient? Yeah, and um, so when it first listed in 2019, it generated about 80% of its revenue from housing or home improvements or housing-related activities. And some of the businesses they've acquired, like Taylor Maxwell principally, it, it does a lot more... Um, commercial building work with some of the wooden facades, etc. Some of the other businesses, it acquired this business called U-Power, which makes a lot of solar panels. And the idea with that is that they, if they are providing roof tiles, say, they can provide the solar panels that people can install on the roofs at the same time. Uh, and But um, there are people who are buying whole fields of solar panels from them directly, not related to housing. And as a result, the overall mix um, has changed slightly. Vichy uh, said they earn about half of the business now from housing, which is obviously, you know, it's 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 diversified quite a lot. We should still be wary, though, of course, you know, given the the macro outlook, given you know the uncertainty around housing, it feels like maybe we'll come on to valuation shortly. But you know, this like sectors more closely related to housing, house builders, etc. They can look, you know, pretty cheap, but the the macro events can quickly derail any hope of a quick rebound as the, you know, the year goes on. We're still all waiting to find out what will happen with the housing market. And even at 50% of the business, you know, that's a pretty, pretty big potential headwind there. Indeed, yeah. I mean, um, valuations in this market, both for the house builders and the builders merchants, uh, they've been hammered since, what, mid-2021. And... You look at some of the companies here like Marshalls and, you know, the valuation has come down by more than half. Um, I know there have been, as I mentioned earlier, there have been quite a lot of profit warnings. So you might be looking at something that's valued at five, six times earnings. And when you compare it to its five-year average or, you know, it's longer, even longer than averages, they look remarkably cheap. But the risk there is to the E side of a PE ratio that, you know, You've got to ask yourself if the housing market, which you know, new starts have been bad uh, since Liz Truss's wonderful mini budget last year. Um, so we've had like three quarters of 
a pretty poor housing market. And if mortgage rates are likely to stay inflated, then there really doesn't look like there's any end to that for this year. So if Brickability is still earning 50% of its earnings from this housing market and this housing market looks like it's likely to be depressed for the rest of the year, then there will be a question mark over future earnings. Alex, do you have any Brickability thoughts? Looking at the company, looking at Mike's write-up, it's the first time I've uh, come across them. But um, I mean, it, it, they are so the shares are so cheap on you know with everything Mike said um, uh, sort of baked into that. Um, the I suppose the the thing you the, the bull case you might make is I mean construction sentiment you know is obviously dire, but they are profitable and. You know the fact that they're trading below book value probably reflects the fact that they're you know they're a distributor rather than a you know that rather than they're in the business of making bricks where you can maybe put a bit more faith in the value of the underlying assets because those you know you know those aren't going away in the case of Mickle, uh, sort of um, their peers like uh, um, Ibstock and Micklemarsh, but they. I think a long-term view, you could you could build a case for a, a sort of compelling value there. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with the the next general election, and you know, planning reform is always the topic which which gets kicked down the kicked down the road. But that could be an opportunity for them if there you know if there is some life to be breathed back into UK construction. You would assume it's not going to be from a massive government spending plan. It's going to be from a reform to um, the way construction permissions are, are made. So there's lots and lots of big ifs there, but that is, uh, you know, for a, a company trading at a discount to its its net assets, that is one thing I would pin my hopes on if I was going, you know, going to take a sort of uh, value based, maybe contrarian take on the shares. Um, yeah, that was that was my thoughts. I also didn't realise bricks could be so interesting. It's, um, <laughs> yeah. In terms of uh, just with the valuation, I think there are a couple of plus points with it and a couple of minuses as well. The plus points are it's done a lot of acquisitions, but it is quite cash generative and it's carrying, you know, its debt levels are pretty low for an acquisitive business. It's only got net debt of $8 million. Um, but on the minus side, the, the argument that, we made when we put Marshalls uh, on a sell last year was that it, you know, when you look at its acquisitions and its balance sheet, a lot of its, um, a lot of its assets were in intangibles, which is not something that you would expect from a company that has, you know, that sells building materials, and therefore you would expect that a bunch of its valuation would be um, tied to physical assets. And with Brickability, it's the same as well. These acquisitions mean that quite a lot of its value is is in intangibles. And if, um, as we've pointed out, there's, there's an earnings risk there, then there's a risk to the carrying value of of a bunch of the acquisitions that they've bought. Well, on the subject of acquisitions, you know, given you know the valuations we are talking about, and given the fact that well, we'll come on. We'll come on to uh, whether uh, Brickability might make to, might be interested in an acquisition in a minute. But first of all, would it be a potential candidate for being bought by you know the likes of Ibstock for Terra? I mean, Ibstock I think is a you know work with it as a distributor. Obviously, it's it's a risky down to making an acquisition. Equally, you know, uh, we should also say Brickability new chief exec has just come over from Micklemersh, so maybe. Uh, again, maybe there's some potential there. This is all kind of fancy M and A, but are these things? To, you know, well, keep the in new, the back of the mind. The new chief exec, um, Frank Hanna, is 
he's actually on a, I think he's on a 12-month notice period, so he's not going to join okay, until... he's got a while, yet. yeah. until the first half of next year. But obviously, um, you know, it's... it's I, I get the impression it's quite a tight-knit industry that people know each other, and I'm sure that they're all looking at each other and conversations have been had with valuations at this level. Um, the issue is whether or not you would want to spend the cash on acquiring something like this at this stage. Um, and although the likes of Ibstock and Forterra particularly are much, much bigger players, they've both had some quite big capital programmes going on, which uh, in terms of expanding their own capacity, as we mentioned, this market was massively underserved and both have spent huge amounts in upgrading existing brickworks, um, which... I think, despite John Richard's comments about the types of bricks, it, it's already leading to decisions being made around productivity levels and uh, whether or not they can um, maintain uh, enough, or whether there's enough demand to maintain current supply levels. So if they've both spent massively on expanding their own plants, then... I don't really see a reason why they would want to buy an importer. Their job surely is going to be to to try and get enough custom to fill um, their own mm. order books. Mark, uh, just to return to the, the wider picture, you were looking at some sentiment surveys, I yeah, think. Yeah, I was as well. It's interesting to hear Michael's comments there too. Just on that valuation point, if you wanted to drill down a little bit further, uh, it might be worth looking at, at uh, inventory levels as well. And that's because, you know, making bricks is such an energy intensive process too. It may be that importers don't have to hold so much in the way of inventory. I, I wouldn't know that, but I think it's something worthwhile if you were going to really, uh, you know, look at the evaluation from a, a granular point of view. I did look at some uh, survey results from the uh, Construction Products Association, and they fall into line with everything that Michael was saying there. You've seen the third uh, consecutive quarter, they've seen a, a fall in sales for what's termed heavy side producers. That's things like concrete, aggregate, and of course, uh, bricks as well. Whereas um, the internal fit-out refurbishment and maintenance market remains pretty healthy as well. And that actually might point to the advantages that uh, brickability is accruing from that diversification, which uh, Michael alluded to earlier on. Yeah, well, it's a, one of those rare sectors where there's lots of listed companies in there, so there's going to be plenty of data for us to uh, keep our eyes on in the, uh, the weeks and months ahead. For now, though, we are going to turn to our cover story this week, which is on the hidden or secret stars of the FTSE, or rather the companies behind the FTSE 100, if you will. Alex, you wrote the piece. Can you sort of outline that, the thinking of the piece in a bit more detail? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, they're not hidden or in the sense that we've probably talked about them, a lot mm. of these companies on this uh, podcast before. But um, I suppose they're hidden behind the narrative of uh, UK equities, which, I mean... It's often the case, I think, that the, it's it's a shorthand for the FTSE 100. So, you know, even though a good chunk of the businesses in the FTSE 100 are, you know, only really UK businesses in a legal sense or, you know, historical accident, given the, the sort of historic um, ownership. Um, and if they're coming to, you know, to market today, it's 
unlikely that AstraZeneca or Unilever or, you know, British American Tobacco would necessarily, you know, choose London as their primary listing. But yeah, the FTSE 100, it's, it's, a, it's a very maligned uh, index, despite, I think, as I'd say, despite its kind of long-term um, returns, it's kind of held up fairly well um, when you look on a sort of multi-decade basis. But the, the, the chief kind of um, concern investors have with it is, uh, is it's, it's kind of, con- it's, it's makeup. So, um, you know, unless we're going to see a dramatic shift in that, I don't think and I don't think that's going to happen soon. Uh, we can expect it to trade cheaply. Why? Because in sector weight terms of sector weightings, you've got about a fifth in consumer staples, a quarter in resources, that being energy and all the big miners, and another fifth in in telecoms and financials. So yeah, their 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 cheapness is a function of the businesses that that make up the index and their cyclical kind of trend growth businesses, and they're going to be priced cheaply. So uh, the 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 more important question that the questions that this raises, I, I would say, are one, you know, can these businesses out earn their cost of capital, which I think they can. But secondly, more importantly, whether these are businesses with you know serious economic moats and that can offer investors a genuine equity growth story, and that's much more debatable. So, to to get to the sort of the nub of the the feature, we wanted to look at businesses which are operating in the sectors that the the big FTSE 100 names uh, are in but which have um which, which have a bit more of an exciting growth story about them in 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 some cases they are they are uh, service providers to the FTSE 100 companies in others they're kind of um competing in a, in a in an odd way at a lower level or they are um they're potentially taking margin where um where the you know the the sort of mature um uh, industry leaders are are struggling to um, preserve theirs. Yeah, as you say, you know there is a, a service aspect to some of these companies as well. We won't go into the names of all the companies. You'll obviously have to pick up the magazine for that. But but you know that that service aspect play, does play to kind of the strength of the the UK economy, really. Yeah, uh, you know we're uh, as an economy, we're not uh, in relative terms. We're not uh, our natural resources endowment um, bricks aside, perhaps. Um, uh, isn't enormous, so we're not able to compete when it when it comes to uh, a lot of goods. But we have an enormous uh, professional services industry, and that reflects, you know, the, some of the strengths of the the economy. You know, being education, uh, you know, th- those come with trade offs in terms of higher labour costs. But um, often, services businesses do provide a lot of value add, and for investors, they can have their own structural advantages and economic moats to to put a very sort of high level. Uh, gloss gloss on things. So in some ways, there are reasons when we're talking about the UK economy to focus on these businesses, because these these are really where, you know, the strengths in the UK economy um, lie rather than, you know, be it sort of mining oil and gas or, um, or you know, the provision of, of ever more commodified products like uh, like telecoms. So on that note, we will just discuss one, one of the companies briefly, uh, which I think you have singled out an example so there's a company um which i know Gemma has written about uh, several times before and i've covered a bit it's not the most world shatteringly interesting business but for the purposes of of comparison with the FTSE 100 it's really interesting to see a business that has been a real growth story over the last few years that company is um uh, it's called alpha financial markets consulting so it, one of the things the FTSE 100 is full of is big investment managers 
um, and asset managers. And if you're if you're a large fund manager like Schroders or Aberdeen, you know there are a few big things you have to contend with. One is the long term growth of sort of lower cost passive management, which is essentially um, a, a product which um, lots of investing customers prefer. Second, you've got the challenge of offering any sort of uh, outperformance at scale, which becomes essentially impossible when you're, you know, you're managing assets of hundreds of hundreds of billions of pounds. Um, and then third, you've got the inherent fluctuations in the markets, which can, which can have a kind of multiplier effect when markets are sort of in a in a downturn, because then you lead to it leads to uh, outflows. So even though a lot of money is um, uh, you know, with these asset managers is very, very sticky, which has its own kind of structural advantages. Um, it's not what you'd call a growth story, and that's completely reflected in, the, in their share prices. Alpha FMC is a they're, they're a consultancy group which um, offers services essentially to the industry to to, to try and help them um, sort of navigate this very very difficult outlook. Um, and they work with all of the last, largest asset managers around the world, sort of advising the comple- complexities of compliance, marketing, strategy, M&A, and that sort of thing. And they've grown, grown very, very strongly um, over the past five years as you know, everyone in the investment in- industry is trying to understand their own um, competitive advantage or whether to kind of fold essentially and merge or acquire other businesses. I mean, putting all this aside, it's debatable whether the degree to which management consultants provide incredible value for money, I mean, by definition, they're not going to turn around the, the prospects for all of their customers because this is mm. an industry with its st- structural challenges. But the desire for and the demand for their services just keeps on growing because this is what, if you're you know, in a professional services company like an investment manager and you, you need answers and direction and strategy, you turn to outside consultants so um, the growth story within investment management, essentially, if you put aside passive investing, hasn't been in the big FTSE 100 names we all know. It's been in the kind of services provide, being provided to them. And Alpha FMC is a sort of textbook example, I'd say, of, of this trend. Um, yeah. Yeah. They need an M&A advisory arm or something, don't they? Say to one, say to one business, you need to acquire someone. Say to another, you need to be acquired. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. I'm sure they have Chinese walls in place if that were the case. They do exist. Yeah, I mean, that that trend, you know, we've seen it again this week with uh, Gresham House yesterday being acquired, albeit that was uh, by a buyout firm rather than uh, a fellow listed company. But I suppose the likes of Schroders, you know, for example, have bought Greencoat Wind, mm. uh, owner of the, you know those investment trusts. So you see that kind of diversification, which perhaps, you know, is management's uh, uh, own thinking. Perhaps there's a bit of consultancy thinking there as well, saying, you know, you need to... If you can't compete with passives, you need uh, diversification at least. You need some alternatives arms that are more resistant to that. Exactly. Threat. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to, to chew over for these uh, these consultants. Exactly. And, you know, Alpha FMC has been successful and they've, they've tacked on other services looking at insurance uh, and private uh, private markets. I think the, the issue they face over the next 10 years is when they reach a, a scale in the same way as the investment managers, it's going to be harder for them to grow. But I don't think right now that's a that's a pressing concern for them because they're able to sort of chalk up double-digit growth just by expanding the number of consultants globally. So, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, scale eventually becomes its own problem, but on the way up, um, it's much less of a problem. And, and I think for investors, it's this kind of business which... Um, you know, provides a, a much smarter equity growth story than 
than the big boys. Yeah. Well, as we say, there are several other examples in the piece, some of which are, are quite similar in terms of feeding into you know these these big sectors in the, uh, the FTSE 100. So do look out for that if you see it this week. We are going to finish, though, with a FTSE 250 business, newly uh, included in the index as of last month, I think. And that is Me Group International. Uh, it also had uh, figures out last week, the end of last week. And Gemma, you also took a closer look last month to coincide with its arrival in the 250 because it is, it is quite an unusual business or certainly idiosyncratic, shall we say, in terms of, in terms of what it does. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's quite a, a weird business. So it used to be called Photo Me, which gives more of a sense of, of what it does, I suppose. So the core business is that it installs photo booths in sort of shopping centres, train stations. Um, and they're the sort of photo booths you'd use to have sort of a passport picture done. Um, but it's been trying recently to sort of push more into different markets. So laundry is its its new glamorous ambition. Um, so it has these massive washing machines in various um, public spaces. And that seems to be, I suppose, uh, a movement away from the traditional photo booth business, which we'll probably discuss in more depth a bit later, but seems to make sense to me. Yeah, and we... You know, it's a business which sounds very old fashioned. You know, the the concept of photo booths to some extent are a little bit old fashioned now, but clearly still growing, as we'll come on to. Uh, likewise, laundry isn't going to you know excite too many people, but they also have you know other vending machines, I believe, as well, juice things like that. And it, it's quite it's quite interesting. We were talking just before we came on air about the geographic revenue split as well. It's certainly quite big in Europe, but it's also you know got a small footprint in the likes of Japan, which. Kind of makes sense because they have a lot of novelty vending machines there. I don't know if I'm putting two and two together, making five, but you know it is spread out geographically. It does have, you know, quite a long reach despite its, uh, you know, rather limited business lines. Yeah, and I think its presence in the UK is actually quite small, which is partly why I, for one, hadn't really paid it that much attention before it entered the FTSE 250. Um, but yeah, I was on holiday on holiday in France a few weeks ago, and it, loads of loads of signs of it there. So it does seem fairly scattered. You know, it's got a, a French chief executive, so that sort of ties in with the, the wider story. Mm. Of course, the reason it's in the 250 is it has been you know, going gangbusters to a certain extent over the last few months. Uh, the drivers of that growth, that is that coming from expansion from, I think, you know, it, we'll come on to the CapEx discussion, I think, because it is investing heavily in this, you know, this laundry side of things as well. So far, so good, it seems, in terms of the success of those two strands. Yeah, so in the six months to the 30th of April, revenue was up by a quarter um, and it was spread fairly evenly across the business. So photo booths saw sales up by 25% and that's still the big, the biggest sort of sales generator. Um, and the laundry operations saw sales go up by 37%. So that's growing really nicely. Um, but I think there was just this fear for ages that particularly in the photo booth division that demand would just fall off a cliff because You've got smartphones now, and I think in the UK you're allowed even to do selfies for official identification purposes, and lots of other markets allow someone else to take a photo of you on their phone. So there was this thought that people just won't use photo booths anymore. Um, and that does still cast a shadow, I think, but so far at least demand is holding up really, really nicely. I suppose it depends on sometimes on location as well. Like I was renewing my passport the other week, and they've got a, a booth in there, so you know, if you've got something wrong with your photos for your last-minute appointment, you have no other choice. And maybe also there's that, and this is UK only, which as discussed is only about 15% of the business, but 
uh, you know, I'm thinking off the cuff here as well, but, you know, passport delays, there's a lot of people getting uh, passports turned around very quickly because of strikes and things like that. So you kind of, you feel maybe more confident with a booth, you know, you're not going to get your photo rejected and therefore your holiday plans ruined. I've no idea if that extends to other regions that, too. Yeah, but. I think so. Yeah, you get your holiday ruined at the airport instead. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but no, when I was looking into the company, there was something else I hadn't really come across before, but it's known as spoofing. So apparently there's this new way of merging photos of similar looking people, which allows um, sort of multiple people to be using maybe one passport. And I think governments are getting increasingly concerned about that. So um, Me Group is fueling money into this anti-spoofing technology. So if you go to a photo booth, you know that it's a legitimate picture. And I think there's this hope from them that actually governments might move back towards that more controlled model. Mm. Yeah, well, could turn from a potential headwind to a tailwind, albeit that might still be a little little way off, mightn't it? Uh, the, the expansion of the other side of the business, as you alluded to earlier, you know, it does involve a decent amount of capex, obviously, you know, Washing machines cost money, uh, as do photo booths, I suppose. But but what are the kind of signs there of that expansion, how sustainable it is, or at least how much they're, they're putting into to that part of the business? Yeah, so I think um, I was speaking to the company a few weeks ago, and it sounds like washing machines are way more capital intensive than photo booths. Photo booths, you can basically install them and leave them, and they don't need that much maintenance. Whereas um, as this other side of the business develops, presumably it will start, sucking in some cash um but they are expanding their portfolio but they're hoping yet yeah, to install plenty of new machines so on the photo booth side they've as i mentioned trying to create these new more sophisticated booths but there's been a bit of a hold up on that and the rollout is slower than expected um but basically key to the growth is just getting way more machines out there across their estate so it's a big push on on the laundry side at the moment and trying to value a business like this obviously with you know Several, uh, as I say, idiosyncratic arms uh, can be tricky. Can a court analyst try to sort of break down the constituent parts and do a peer analysis with that, which made it look relatively cheap? But but is there a potential? You know, when you're combining all these things in, under one roof, is there a a discount maybe that should be applied to the these kind of companies? You know, this melange of different things. It's not really a conglomerate, but is there a conglomerate risk there? I suppose it's hard because there aren't any really direct comparators. So it trades on a forward price to earnings ratio of about 12, which sounds um, pretty cheap, I suppose. And yeah, one of the analysts I was speaking to basically compared it to sort of a toll booth model. So they install the machines and they just gather cash. But again, that's not really that useful from a valuation perspective. Um, so as you mentioned, there was one analyst who basically broke it down into different sectors. Um, so like looked at concessions, infrastructure, retail, um, from an enterprise value to EBITDA perspective. And Me Group came out cheaper than all of those. So there does seem like there's there's something to be there to be seen in the valuation. But I think the big question mark for investors is what happens to the photo division because to me that hasn't really been cleared up and there is still this risk that sales will, will I don't know, decline quite steeply. Mm. Alex, do you have any thoughts on uh, Photo Me or Me Group as I should call them? Yeah, I mean they did. They have come up uh, quite consistently in in the past year's stock screens, um, which is why the name uh, and having to fiddle around with the name change has been um, has been something I've yeah I've looked at in the last year. And I'm just trying to under, I suppose understanding that that cash flow recycling um, dynamic in the business. I wonder if 
one of the advantages that maybe they that they have is because one photo booth is sort of nominally a very small capex investment which you can then redeploy without too much pain if it is if it's not a you know a cash generator which is quite it's quite unusual for a lot of capital spending that businesses do that is sort of fixed in one place and it's going to it's going to be more heavily impaired if it doesn't go to plan whereas you know, I suppose photo photo me or me group now is looking at these very sort of kind of micro investments almost, and the ability to uh, sort of redeploy them and, and learn from their own uh, sort of understand their own their, their cash generation at a very micro level might be one of the ways that they you know uh, exp- explanations for their their success. Um, I'm slightly spitballing there, but it's an it's an interesting model from something which like as you're saying, Dan. I don't, I, you know, in terms of how old-fashioned it is, you, you don't expect it to work um, necessarily, but um, they've shown that it can. And, uh, yeah, maybe vending machines just are the future, and I, I, just, I can't can't quite see it. Mm. Well, as I say, you know, I suppose there's no limit to what you could, could sell from a vending machine, in theory. Uh, Japan, again, maybe being an example here. I suppose, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of the reason as well is, you know, it's gone on the radar because there is an instinct you know, from myself as well, to be slightly sniffy about this odd kind of, you know, business, you know, old fashioned. It's not a, it's not a tech, you know, story as we, we see over the pond, but maybe this is a, uh, you know, a success story of the UK market. I was looking at the ownership as well. You know, there are, there are some fund managers on there now, uh, Schroeder's Fidelity are in there. I don't know how long they've been in there, but, you know, so it does have some institutional backing too, which is good or bad, depending on what you, uh, what you think. But, you know, they seem to own a, a decent proportion of the shares. So, it's certainly something people are waking up to or, you know, maybe have been paying attention to for some time and, and they've reaped the benefits from getting in there early. Uh, Gemma, I know it's in some ways maybe it's quite similar to Fort Imprint, which is another uh, company that's really rocketed uh, in recent months doing slightly unusual things, in that case selling merchandise. Yeah, I think we just have this tendency to only, well, not only look, but to focus heavily on sort of the all singing or dancing tech stocks, but then you see these weird seemingly very niche companies that i don't know for imprint as you say makes all this printed merchandise and distributes it um knit shares have just been doing amazingly well and that is another one that features in lots of um lots of small cap funds i think so i don't know they're just very very easy to miss as a retail investor i suppose yeah well they're becoming more obvious which again maybe a good sign maybe a bad sign obviously you've always got to be wary with momentum but certainly worth taking a look and not dismissing these things when when you come across them i think it's the lesson there That does bring us to the end of today's show, though. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But thank you very much to Gemma, to Mike, to Alex and to Mark. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show.